A few words on investigation. There's, of course, lots that could be said about that because investigation is really synonymous with insight, with vipassana. Um, There would seem to have been a bit of confusion. Uh, Some of the examples of investigation that were used If you recall, I mentioned that they're uh, similitudes. They're like investigation or embryonic investigations. Uh, We've all done it. Anytime we've looked into something, we've tried to shed some light on some aspect of ourselves or life. But the investigation vipassana way, there was a more technical meaning, a narrower meaning, a more specialized meaning, has to do with seeing into clearly uh, the truth of change, that everything changes, of unsatisfactoriness that does exist in life, that to some degree is, of course, due to the fact that things keep changing, and the absence of a core, a self that is subsistent, that is enduring, that is autonomous, that has intrinsic nature, that exists by itself from its own side. Impermanence is what's been emphasized on this retreat because that's really the door, certainly one of the best, the best door I know, to the most profound truths of this practice. Uh, If you start seeing things change, whether it's the breath or the body or feelings or Uh, certainly mind states, when you start seeing mind states, the whole notion of what a self is becomes challenged. If you have self-images, notions, self-descriptions about who you are or who you used to be or who you'd like to be, if you sit and watch day in and day out, hour in and hour out, you can see that there's nothing that you can point to and say, that's me. You can do it. You can point to it and say, that's me, but then it's gone. And then something else comes, which might be contradictory, quite different. And so a whole bunch of notions come and go in a sense of, this is me, this belongs to me, this doesn't belong to me. And so uh, a deep looking into the mind-body can help, but at least uh, complicate any notions that you might have, any attempts to answer the question, who am I? The ancient commentators uh, listed a few auxiliary practices or other practices that uh, assist us in developing investigation. I mentioned some, but a few that uh, I didn't get to were one, to question. Now, in the context of a retreat where we're meditating, especially doing lots of sitting, the main sense in which we're using investigation is the intuitive, uh, direct perception of what's happening. It comes right out of the mindfulness. As we look more carefully, light is shed on that which we're looking at, and we begin to see a little bit more deeply what anything is. Other activities, though, that, that help the mind become 
uh, more of an investigative kind of mind have to do with questioning. I think Westerners have that one very well developed. I don't think we need, I don't think we need any workshops on that one. Uh, if you practice in Asia, there isn't anywhere near as much questioning. Some of the Asian teachers really like the fact that we ask so many questions. Just to generalize in a fairly superficial way or general way, uh, many, a lot of the Asian practitioners that I practiced with were much, had much stronger faith and were simpler and could come to calm a lot more quickly than myself and a lot of other Westerners. But often the very faith and respect for authority sometimes blocked the inquiry, the really looking deeply into certain things, a certain, a little bit passive sometimes. Um, some of the Asian teachers, of course, uh, were not too patient with our questioning. So anytime we question, that's, of course, an act of strengthening that quality of mind, of being interested. Uh, working with the teachings, the sutras, or Dharma talks of this sort, or if you read some books on Buddhism, or talk things over with Dharma friends, try to uh, probe and understand just what was meant, reflect on the verbal teachings, the principles. That can also be very useful and helpful, giving you thoughts that go in the direction that the practice goes in. Cleanliness is suggested as very important. Outer cleanliness, that is, your house, your room, your clothing, and your body, including the bowels. I didn't make this up. It's in the book. You can check it. (laughs) Uh, When there's that kind of outer cleanliness, the mind is a little bit more bright, a little bit more... uh, in a position to be able to investigate. Put it the other way, when we get a little sloppy and don't take care of things, um, that isn't as encouraging to, mind, to the mind. So we've discussed mo- a bit mindfulness, investigation. But un- unless you can transport mindfulness to the object, no investigation can happen. You've got to somehow or another get mindfulness over to that little old breath or whatever other object and then examine it carefully. And so when we get to effort, what is sometimes called heroic effort or courageous effort or joyous effort, and I'll do my best to explain a certain relationship that I see between those two. We get to a tremendously important quality of mind. So not only must the mind be mindful, it must have a, an interest to inquire, and it has to have energy. Now, I think all of us have learned a lot about effort just in being here nine days. If you don't know more about your capacity to work, to practice after these nine days, I'd be quite surprised. And we know that when we, uh, in a general sense, Uh, Life is energy. And a a very, very important question, for all I know it's the question, is how do we use that energy? Where does it go? Where do we take it to? How do we apply ourselves? 
what does our life amount to? Because how we use our energy is our statement as to what we value, what we want. Well, already? <laughs> it's okay with me. Walking meditation. <laughs> we give these talks mainly so you have some effort, you know, and, and energy. It's one of the main reasons of, of Dharm talks and interviews. I hope some content is helpful and something else goes on in the interviews, but if nothing else, it's to encourage you to practice. Um, it's needed because apparently there are many forces that of resistance. The body, certainly, we all know how much it resists sitting still. So how we, you can have tremendous energy and be a person of tremendous effort, and it's not an enlightenment factor at all. There have been any number of super energetic people in the world, you know, generals and kings and all kinds of people, athletes and every, every walk of life, people who are successful must work hard and have a lot of energy. But that isn't this, the kind of energy we're talking about. This effort has to uh, be beneficial, it has to contribute to, to our own benefit and others' benefit. In the context of the retreat, it mainly means the energy to transport our attention to objects in a persistent and consistent way, in a continuous way. Because that's a lot of what we're doing. And from the point of view of the practice, the most important meaning of effort and energy is the effort to be mindful. Because without that, nothing else or nothing else happens. Nothing happens. Uh, in general, though, uh, effort is needed. Uh, to, we need to put more effort into things that are constructive. Let's say you have some uh, very positive qualities. Let's say you're a generous person. Then the Dharma way is become even more generous. Well, let's say you're the kind of person who bears grudges. The Dharma way is to begin to develop the energy of forgiveness. And so essentially, it's if we have uh, very positive qualities, beneficial qualities, to put more energy into them. If we have qualities that are good that we haven't developed yet, to begin to develop them. If we have negative tendencies to withdraw energy from that, to curb the tendency to act so much out of greed and hatred, and to avoid the situations that bring those kinds of tendencies out. In the context of a retreat, it's mainly what we've been doing since our life is so dramatically simplified here. To begin with, we have to launch ourselves. And if you can think back, I don't know how it seems to you, but after so many interviews, it feels like about a hundred years ago when we started Friday night. For many of us, the first few days were very, very difficult. Uh, and few is, it varies from person to person. Many people, thoughts of leaving, 
your mind had already packed or even, you know, <laughs> movements further in that direction. Uh, you were even ready to go back. You know, you couldn't wait to get out of New York and away from your partner who you were arguing and fighting with and your job, which you don't like. And about the second or third day, you just thought, oh, would that be wonderful just to get back there, to get away from here. But to my knowledge, everyone has stayed. Okay, that's a heroic effort. It's sometimes called courageous and heroic effort. In our own small way, and for many of us it's not small, it's big, it takes a lot to stay in here. Uh, as you know, when pain comes, it's debilitating. We feel exhausted. The mind loses its energy when it has to experience pain uh, over and over again, hour after hour sometimes. So all of us who have stayed here know what this is about. Now, this particular quality means the ability to take energy and to move it towards the object, even though it may be painful, even though it may be unattractive, not something we want to be with, we do it. Um, Shantideva, who is a very great Indian yogi, once said that the The most serious obstacle to spiritual development is the absence of obstacles. Whether that's true or not, it's certainly helpful to hear that because we know what that's about. Obviously, there is truth in it. How else can you grow unless you challenge yourself and take on a little bit more than perhaps you thought you could handle? Um, Let's just take a simple, we began with just the breath. Friday night, a week ago. Right effort is taking our attention back to the breath after it has left the breath over and over and over again, thousands of times perhaps, coming back. And we know that if we don't bring it back to the breath in the right way, it becomes very tiring if we get angry at ourselves, blame ourselves, think we have an unconcentrated mind and so forth, punitive, ambitious, striving, uh, the energy is wrong, it's off, it's not balanced. We need effort that's balanced. Even though there's courage involved, if the courage has too much tension in it, it defeats the purpose. So we have to learn how to arouse, generate, and bring energy back into the situation over and over again. The mind wants to go somewhere else a lot. And we bring it back to begin with with the breath. We practice on a relatively simple and non-controversial object. And we learn how to gracefully come back, finding a mode of energy that's not strained and not too casual either. Neither of them will work out too well. It's got to be right, right in the middle. And that's practice, getting the practice going for a later stage, which came a few days later, if you recall, where once the field is open, more and more we 
need to bring attention to all kinds of states that come upon us. Fear, loneliness, anger, and so forth. Uh, this, the normal thing to do, or the typical thing to do, or what we've been educated to do, is not to turn to it in a non-judgmental way and to envelop it with mindfulness while breathing in and breathing out. I don't think we've been brought up to do that. We've been brought up to take a drink, go to a movie, blame someone else, eat a little bit more, get lost in a book, explain it away, or just just feel downright angry or depressed or whatever it is. But this option is an unusual one. It's saying we're not running away and we're also not going to get lost in it. We're going to fully experience it. If you remember the instructions, just let's take a typical one of these objects where Having energy and effort is so important. Let's say fear comes up, as it has for all of us. Can we turn to that fear? Can mindfulness be transported to the fear that's happening in a given moment, bringing in also the conscious breathing so that all three are taking care of the moment? When we're frightened, we're suffering. Can we turn to that suffering, bringing a very gentle but decisive attention to it, and staying in touch with the breathing, keeping the conscious breathing along? Now, the conscious breathing helps us move towards the object. It can, especially once you get the knack of it. Particularly useful with events that happen in the mind that we don't want to be with, that are very highly charged, that are difficult. So the breath, the conscious breath that accompanies you is like a good friend holding your hand or uh, urging you on or soothing you as you look at something that's painful. Have any of you experienced that? That is, when, when the practice is really happening, it can be very beautiful. Uh, the mindfulness comes together uh, with the conscious breathing and that moment is taken care of. But in order for that to happen, something had to take us there. Right now we're focusing on that, that energy and effort. Same in throughout the day and by extension when you go home. Uh, To make the practice a way of living, mindfulness needs to come back to the moment time and time again. Now I'm not limiting it just to the sitting and the walking, but literally to everything that you're doing. If you're on staff here, and you're in the kitchen, the instructions would be, let's say you're cooking something, to be wholehearted in the cooking. If you're in the office and you're answering a phone, to be wholehearted in listening. Now, we know if we pay attention that the mind wanders. So the instructions are not any different for daily life, really, than they are for sitting here in the room. So we need the effort and the energy, if we're on the phone, to come back, to really listen, to begin to notice that there are holes in our listening, gaps. And little by little, as you become more sensitive, you can see that. It's amazing how we've gotten this far, just barely listening to anyone. And when you pay attention, you'll see that. And so, again, this kind of energy, effort, come back, come back. It has to be graceful, it has to be unhurried. And what's needed is a marathon mind. This is not a sprint. It's not nine days to anything. It really isn't. 
It's at least a lifetime endeavor. Some would say more. I don't know. I just know about this one. But I have faith. Faith is very important. In the interviews, of course, uh, a number of us have doubted ourselves. We've doubted the teachers, the teaching. Mainly, we've doubted our ability to do this or to, to do it in a, in a way that is uh, fruitful. Doubt saps our energy. When we have doubt, it's like a parasite. And it's potentially fatal to the practice. Not to your life. You'll go on living. But if we really have doubt that's not dealt with, seen as a hindrance. Narayan mentioned the hindrances the other day. Seen with and worked with, over and over again, that doubt, of course, takes away our energy and it's very difficult to bring our attention to what's happening. Put the other way, to whatever degree we have confidence or faith or trust in the practice and however we get that, we have energy. The energy enables us to turn towards the object and to begin to practice. So that consideration between doubt and faith is a very, very important one in terms of effort and energy. In Dharma practice, faith is provisional. It's, blind faith is not what's expected of us. We need a certain degree of faith to enter, in, to get into the ballpark, as we say now. You have to do, follow the instructions enough to find out if there's anything to this stuff. If you just listen to it and try to figure it out intellectually and follow a breath here or there, you're never going to confirm whether or not these teachings are priceless as they're supposed to be or not. It doesn't matter how many people say that they're priceless and how precious. You hear those words a lot and read those words. If you don't feel it, if you don't see it, it's not going to help you. And so, however that happens, it's very important for us to come to that. And of course, the main way is through experience, our own. As you practice, I hope everyone has to some degree seen that if you do it, something comes out of it that's really useful. That all of the pain that we've experienced and learned how to work with has not been in vain. There really is a purpose to what we're doing here, and actually a rather important one. Okay. Um, energy and, and, and effort is a very big subject. Other things that, that, ha- that help just get really practical to our retreat here. Uh, since we need to have the energy to move attention to the object, and as we know, sometimes it's very difficult to do, we seem to run out of energy, then what can we draw upon to help us have this energy? What will arouse this energy so that we can do this? We can become mindful. And there are quite a few things that help. And of course, we've been doing lots of them, perhaps as a group, all of them. Let me mention a few. 
if you want to have energy, then, then some very basic things come into it. You have to be take care of uh, the body. If you don't take care of the body in terms of eating, sleep, exercise, of course, it will not have as much energy. If it doesn't have as much energy, it's, uh, the mindfulness is not, doesn't receive the support, particularly when you come up against pain. And so the degree to which the body has energy is a tremendous asset. Under the teachings, this would be part of sati sampajanya, wisdom in action. Clear comprehension of purpose. If you have a purpose, you need to find out what it takes to accomplish that purpose. What, uh, what brings you there? If you want to go to New York from here, you have to find out where, let's say, the train leaves. You have to have the money, buy the ticket, get on the train. It's got to be a train headed to New York and get off at New York. Then you've attained New York. At least you've obtained something. Here, what it is, if you don't take care of the body and find out what your body needs and you have a chronic problem with energy, that's just one more difficulty in terms of having the strength to aim our attention to our life as we find it from moment to moment. A simple uh, application of mindfulness in terms of diet. We've mentioned a number of times about eating mindfully, and so you all know that. But the mindfulness of eating extends beyond the meal. If you pay attention, little by little, you'll begin to see the effects that different foods have on you. At this point, it's helpful to drop all of the diets, all the books that you've read and so forth, and become innocent. And you'll begin to see that certain foods make you tired and sleepy. Certain foods uh, facilitate being awake and having energy. Certain amounts of food have an effect on energy. Too much, too little may not be so good either. So you have to find just how much food and what kinds of food. Some foods agitate the mind. Some foods incline the mind to be dull. Some foods lighten up the mind. And that's something that, in a sense, has to be dealt with meal by meal because we're always different each day. And that's a challenge. It's another kind of investigation. In the service of having enough energy, sufficient energy, to carry out the practice. Of course, the main uh, strength for this effort is mental. And yet the physical support is very, very helpful. Resolve, patience, forbearance. In other words, however we get it, it could be the yearning to be free. Whatever it is that enables us to stay in this. Um, Let me uh, review a few of my own experiences with effort. And I want to make sure that uh, I allow enough time, I'm reminding myself now, to talk about heroic effort and joyous effort. It's important to understand those two, I feel. Let me give you, let's take a few situations. Let's take the schedule. Uh, let's take the community of us. How many of you are aware of how helpful 
it has been to have other people practicing with you. That's the Sangha. Do you think you could have done what you've done alone? Let's say if you were here and the, and the meals were all taken care of. Everything else. Do you think you could have sat through some of the pain that you experienced, the emotional states that came up, if there weren't a whole theater? I mean, it's a dramatic set, an ingenious one, a monastery is, you know, with bells. and This one's pretty low-key, a low-budget film. <laughs> But there are others that are quite uh, rich. But even so, all of us being here, people playing the role of teachers, schedules, everything that enables us to rise above ourselves, to do things that we couldn't do on our own. And you'd be a fool to be arrogant to think that you could. The time comes where practicing alone is extremely important. But for most of us, that comes after sufficient time is spent working through a lot of the stuff that we all work through. And then it's very important to be able to practice alone as well. But so one of the main ways in which energy has been generated is by putting us all together. In Korea, they say you can peel potatoes two ways. One, you can take each individual potato and and peel it. It takes a long time. Or you can just put all the potatoes in a basket and just shake them up. And then they all peel each other. That's... A monastery. That's what we're doing. If you if you get into it, and even the people who slam doors, you know, overall we've been helping each other by being here. Just our presence has helped. Take the schedule. There are different approaches to schedule schedules. Just so you kind of get some of the issues for your practice in the remaining time we have and for future retreats. One approach, which we haven't used is that the schedule is the teacher. It, can't, it, is the, it is a teacher, but it can be a very, very important teacher. Supposing we all arrived and the rule was everyone makes every sitting and every walking. Well, some of you would probably not be here by now if we insisted on it. And in some monasteries, that's the way it is. I'll be in a moment talking more about in Korea, that's the way it was. The first long retreat I ever did was a, a three-month retreat in Korea, and there was no room for missing a sitting unless you got sick. Everyone got it. We all got up at the same time. We set. We all we all had a cushion, a mat. We slept. The mat unfolded, and we slept there. We all slept in the meditation hall, just to give you a sense of how far people can go to really get this going. We ate there, and we meditated there. We all got up at the same time every day, three o'clock. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, you know. <laughs> not much. <laughs> Just illustrating certain principles of Dharma practice. <laughs> and we all went to sleep at 11 o'clock. And the rest of the day we spent sitting and walking, sitting and walking and eating and so forth. And if you missed the sitting, the head monk would, would just want to know where you were. I mean, there was no way to do that. If you were sick, it was fine. There were some other huts where you could go. Now, uh, obviously, no one there felt like sitting every sitting. I, I, certainly, I didn't. But what comes out of that that's of value is if you only sit when you feel like it, you know, just it feels good, feels right, 
then you only get to know that mind. You don't get to know the mind that doesn't want to sit. Very important mind to get to know. And if you ever sit, and you all have, I know that, you've sat when you really haven't fully wanted to, and you've used effort, and you've brought yourself, maybe dragged yourself here, and sat anyway. And sometimes it's been a surprise, hasn't it? For at least sometimes we, a, suddenly, a sitting that you think, oh, this is going to be hopeless, and it can be quite interesting. The truth is we never know. It's all uncertain. Life, that is, and certainly this practice, the sitting, from sitting to sitting. So one approach is that. But we're all, though when we did that there, everyone who did it was a seasoned meditator. Everyone had been practicing hard for a long time. And so it could be very, very helpful to do that. It was. But we're, in this group, we have people who have varying levels of experience. Some who are relatively new to the practice. Moreover, the required form where you're made to sit and walk accomplishes certain things and, in my experience, damages other things, which I personally value very, very highly, namely sensitivity, understanding, and more and more learning how to guide your own practice, or as a maturity of practice. The other model, in a certain way, doesn't have much trust for human weaknesses. It's just saying, look, if we leave you people to yourself, you'll all just be boogieing all day long. You know, and, and having one cup of tea after another. <laughs> Reading every book in the library. We've got to herd you in here. Okay. But because it's valuable to come to sitting after sitting, even though you don't want to. I, I mean, with no option, no choice. If you start to take issue with that, you just have to leave the monastery. It's as simple as that. Very authoritarian. But valuable, really valuable. But what we didn't develop there was the sensitivity, again, using the factor of investigation, understand what we needed, what was best. Uh, Examining the mind and the body closely, like when you have the option to do a late night sitting or not. We didn't just say, everyone sit as late as you can. If you notice, we didn't. What we were encouraging you to do is to pay careful attention. And if you had more energy, even if it was just a wee bit, to to use it, to come back and to sit, even if it was just to walk for 10 minutes and to sit for five minutes. And if you are absolutely exhausted, that perhaps, it's always your decision, <clears throat> perhaps what was best would be to get a good night's rest and wake up and be fresh. And what it requires is, is very much is seeing where the ego is at work. In the other, the ego gets very strong when you agree, when you obey everything that you, that's done. You make every sitting from 11 a.m. and from, from 3 a.m. to 11 a.m. Part of you just feels very, there's a lot of pride. Here, what we're putting a high premium on is for you to, as early as possible in your practice, to, to use self-knowledge itself in knowing how to practice. To know the difference, sometimes going to sleep is wise, is wisdom. Sometimes going to sleep is delusion or greed. Sometimes staying in the hall and sitting till two in the morning is greed and delusion and destructive. And sometimes it's wise. It's not a recipe or a formula. You have to know and you have to learn how to get to know yourself well enough to know when the mind is fooling you. And you are all too eager to let it fool you. 
And little by little, you can develop that. So what we've attempted to do is a balance between having the schedule and encouraging you to sit the schedule, but to understand that there's a, a free flow of not only individuality, but people's practice unfolding in a very different way. And with some people, we encourage people to use the schedule much more than they were. And with others, we say, hey, take a walk in the woods, a mindful walk in the woods. I haven't checked with Narayan, but anyway, I did. So it's flexible. But all of it is to arouse energy, which we need. Um, Time flies. A few examples from the same experience that I had then, where I think I learned more about effort than anything I've ever done before or since. We had a three-month retreat in Korea, this was, and that's 90 days exactly. And there were three Westerners, myself and two other Westerners, and it started out with about somewhere about 50 Korean monks and nuns. About 10 of us finished. At day 45, we didn't know this, they announced that there would be one week of no sleep. Not a choice, just we will stay up for one week. Uh, one, did I say, well, yes, seven days, that's a week? This is, I'm, I'm punchy from, please, no more detailed notes. <laughs> okay. Just simple notes, you know, like, so, I, so my mind can grab, my mind's, brain is like macaroni. Just you know, like, simple little question, you know. Um, they have a tradition that midway through the 90, the annual three-month retreat, uh, everyone stays up for seven straight days. Well, we were terrified and furious. No one told us that. We were ready to get on the next plane, Korean Airlines, and get out of there, back to the good old U.S. of A., where you can get a good night's rest. (laughs) But to put it... Bluntly, we were embarrassed. We were like ambassadors. They had made such a fuss over the... We were the first Americans to practice in Korea. It was a while ago. That how could we say... You know, we would admit that we were kind of wimps. (laughs) (laughs) So we started doing it. And the first day and a half... I would say one of the most unhappy times in my life that I can remember. Total misery. Uh, And I went to, to the teacher, who himself was 94 years old, uh, bright-eyed, I mean, just glowing. He couldn't, he had to be carried into the meditation hall. His, his, body, his body was 90, 94, 95, but his mind was so fresh. And uh, actually, I went, the three of us went, and we, we described just, we, were, this, we didn't think we could do it. And he just laughed. Uh, there was one grandmother on the retreat, and she was doing it. She was a laywoman who had been practicing for 35 years, and she was doing it along with us. She was in her 70s. Anyway, what this teacher told us, said, look, part of why it's so hard for you is that you've made this concept a week without sleep, and you're carrying that around, and it's exhausting. If you just take it one thing at a time, just moment by moment, this sitting, this going to the bathroom, this eating, this walking, just... Forget about the notion of time altogether and just take care of the moment, moment after moment after moment. 
said, you'll find it's a lot easier. It's still difficult to do, but it's not as difficult as you think. It's, we've done it many, many times. So we did, and it, he was right. It was difficult, but it was, it was something that was possible. It was okay. It wasn't beyond our capacity. I bring up this dramatic event because sometimes, haven't you had the feeling like, oh, when is this sitting going to end? Or, no, not two more sittings before I can go to sleep. Or, three more days before I can go home. All of that is tiring and reduces our energy and effort. If you can... Uh, begin again all the time. In other words, just take each moment as it turns up. Really focus on what needs to be done now. Now is sitting, now is walking, now it's this step, now it's that step. And not be so concerned with time. After all, you don't have to be. We take care of the time. It's one of the main things we do is we hit bells. And, yeah. okay. When people ask me what I do, I sometimes say I'm a professional timekeeper. That's what it feels like sometimes. Other help. Other help from uh, this one retreat that, by extension, I hope can be useful for you. Uh, before the midway point, uh, we were all very sick. We couldn't hold our food. We all had dysentery, and uh, the Korean food didn't agree with us. And uh, I myself felt very, very weak. We were working on a koan. The koan was called, What Am I? It's a question. You ask it in words to get it going, but then you don't really use words. It's just a deep looking in. And it's the energy of, what am I? What am I? And that's also a form of investigation, by the way. And so I went to, to this same teacher, and I told him, I said, look, I'm exhausted. I can't, uh, I can't do the koan or anything. I just, it's too much. And he looked with great compassion. He said, look, when you had strength and energy, it was, what am I? And we were encouraged, actually. It was heroic. That the great question was called, the ultimate question, the big question. It is. And he said, so when you had all that strength and energy, it was, what am I? What am I? He says, now that you're so exhausted, it can be, what am I? What am I? <laughs> really, it sounds like a Jewish joke, but it's Korean. <laughs> it's Korean. <laughs> but what he was saying was, and this is what, no matter how difficult it is for us, when, if we have a disability, if we have a chronic illness, if we feel sick, if we have low energy, you can always practice. You can always keep the flow of practicing going. No matter how miserable you are, no matter how discouraged you are, you can, and this is part of how right effort, what effort is about, remember to just turn to that itself, what you're feeling. Discouraged, fed up, whatever it is, so that and you don't have tremendous energy. It's okay. So you stay mindful with what little energy you have, but you keep the flame going. You, you maintain that flow, that current. Joyous energy and heroic energy. Heroic energy, I think, must be pretty obvious to all of you. And uh, We arouse it in many ways. We arouse it, I would say, uh, However you've come here, something brought you here, and trust that. Uh, perhaps it was reading Buddhist materials, uh, reading the life of the Buddha, or of great yogis. Perhaps it's a yearning for something. 
you can arouse the energy. Uh, something's got to mean something to you. And in this lineage, ways in which it has been aroused, when you're feeling low energy, that you don't have very much energy at all, a few ways that I'll suggest. One is to reflect on the lineage, this lineage of practitioners which goes back thousands of years. Now, in a certain sense, these are our ancestors, just as much as our blood ancestors. And sometimes, perhaps, it might feel that in actuality even more so. But that won't work for you unless you really feel that. I do. I feel very connected to particular teachers that I've had. You know, and I know the effort they used. I saw them, you know, uh, I can remember how, how generously they just kept giving and giving and giving beyond belief. And what I've read, the great, the Buddha's life, of course, and the disciples, now there are more and more in English opportunities to understand that many people just like ourselves with doubts and weaknesses and uh, destructive life patterns uh, kept going. And they practiced and they broke through to some freedom. So sometimes just reflecting on that can arouse tremendous energy. If you already know the value of this, if you've been, because I would say the most reliable source of the effort and the energy comes from the practice itself. That is, you've seen that mindfulness is the basis for a happy life. It's, there's nothing we could talk about which doesn't require mindfulness to do it well. It's so simple, so unassuming, and so vital to carry out everything. And perhaps if you've done some practice, then you know that. You don't have to be fully enlightened to know that. You've already tasted that, you're, that there's something going on here that's real, that it's worth it. So you can draw upon that. Uh, sometimes... Narayan and I practiced at a, a monastery in Thailand, Wat Pa Ban Thad, a very impressive monastery, just uh, full of uh, good energy and, and uh, really a real monastery, a true monastery. Uh, and I remember even years after we came back, from, this is in the forest, sometimes if I feel a little discouraged or tired, I just had to think of the monastery or Ajahn Mahabua, and suddenly I had energy again. Think of Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm suddenly, I have energy again, or whoever. So we all need encouragement. We need to kind of draw deeply into ourselves to tap energy that's there to uh, bring it into our practice. Now, what's in the literature, the term heroic effort, courageous effort is, is mainly used. Now and then you'll see joyous effort. Personally, in my own practice and in, and in teaching, what I've been for a number of years now attempting to do is to maintain the intensive practice form that we're doing here, but to humanize it. In other words, to not water down or compromise the sitting and the walking and the encouragement to practice, but to add to it some sensitivity and flexibility and individuality. And that's come from a number of sources. The Thai forest tradition is, is great on that. Thich Nhat Hanh is wonderful on that. Courageous effort is obvious. You all have, we've all been doing it. You just keep going. You don't feel like doing, coming to another sitting. You don't feel like looking at your boredom. But somehow or another, you do it. 
joyous effort is more subtle. Some maintain you can begin with it. I have my doubts. But I'll just give you my sense of what it is. Uh, Practice effort can be joyous. Even when you're working very, very hard, even when you're, uh, in short, in quotes, not getting results, the mind's all over the place and the practice feels feeble. The joy comes in, and again, I think this can only happen if you've practiced enough to understand that there is something real going on here. The, the joy comes in in that you know that the effort that you're expending is on your own behalf, that it is an absolutely benevolent, wonderful thing that you're doing. I had a, an interview with someone uh, and we were practicing, sometimes in the interview, a person, this person got into a troubled state. And sometimes in the interview room itself, we'll just say, well, okay, what, what, let's meditate together. Just go into it. Just be with it while you're breathing. And this person had a very, very, it was something quite, not on this retreat, very, very painful and difficult. And the person described it, was trying to be mindful, was accompanying it with the breathing. Uh, and then finally the interview ended and I don't know whether he, it fell away or anything of that sort, but then he, at the end of the interview, he said, it was so fulfilling. And I said, what was fulfilling about it? And he said, well, even though it was so painful, the fact that I was mindful of the pain felt that it was the right thing to be doing. I felt I was in the right place, doing the right thing. There's nothing I could have been doing that was any better. What else could I do? Go out and get drunk? Punch someone out? You know, uh, empty the refrigerator? see three movies in a row. And there was a feeling of, even though it wasn't so great what it was that, that had to, we had to be mindful of, that somehow uh, he was into it. And it was the right thing to be doing. So the joyous effort comes in that you know in a very deep way that what you're doing is really beneficial for you. It's, and it doesn't, it's not so much like cod liver oil, you know, like this is going to be good for you. It's that you know what a very, you are doing it for yourself. You understand that this is a, uh, you know, all positive words and my vocabulary is running out. Uh, that you know you're doing something on your own best, on your own best behalf. It's a, uh, and so independent of whether you have a lot of energy or not, the effort is joyous. Now, when the practice, that's why I think it, it's hard for beginners to really feel that. I think you have to go on faith a lot. And I don't know, a beginner can be, I don't know how long a beginner is. Um, Maybe another way of putting it, however you come to this, It would be, the, the reason we practice is in order to practice. That is, practice itself becomes the means and the end. It just, it's a good way to live. I think I may have mentioned this. The Buddha at one point, in one of a very small, not too well-known sutta that someone showed me recently, uh, went off 
suddenly and took three months and went into retreat, solitary retreat. And at the end, he came back and someone asked him what he was doing. He said he was on retreat. And they said, what did you do on the retreat? And he said, I did Anapanasati for three months, work with the breath as, as we're doing. And he said, well, but you are fully enlightened. Why did you have to do that? I mean, why were you doing that? And the Buddha apparently with some amazement said, well, you know, it's just a wonderful way to live. <laughs> you know, the body feels good and the mind feels good. I mean, uh, you get my drift. Okay, but the practice has to come to a point where, you know, a fair amount of the time you really are tapping the beauty that is in all of us. But it's loving the practice. Um, let's put it this way, and I know some of you are relatively new, and, and also for people who've been practicing practicing a while. Uh, tomorrow, perhaps all of us or most of us, are, are, you'll be going home. And without the support, sometimes you may find or feel that your practice is just pathetic and puny. This is reported to me, you know, sometimes in Cambridge or wherever. And you just feel, oh, it's just awful. You know, I just sit and I, I get, lo- I hardly can follow one breath. Um, with this attitude, no matter how pathetic, no matter how puny your practice is, if you can cherish it, if you can cherish your practice, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. Don't get too locked into results in other words, too ambitious uh, in a sense of constantly keeping your eye on certain results. And if you don't get the results, then there's tension and suffering, of course. Now, I don't know how to help a person. We do our best. Come to the point where the practice, in a sense, you practice in order to practice. That's the reason you do it. I don't know if that's confusing. It's the best I can do. Can we have a moment's silence? Around about this time, it's not unusual for the the body to be here, but for the mind to be in New York or Mexico or someplace. You're here still, you know. See that. So firmly planted in the present. See the mind planning out what you're going to do tomorrow night or Monday. And very gently, come back, come back, come back. As one person suggested from another uh, teacher, uh, don't pack until it's time to actually leave. If you've started packing, the, your, your, your mind is already uh, on the way out. So wait until after it really is over and then pack. It doesn't, you didn't bring that much stuff, did you? <laughs> you know, you can get packed in no time. So uh, the retreat isn't over and sometimes some of the richest times of a retreat are towards the end. We've worked so hard. There's a certain momentum that's been developed. You have some samadhi now to work with. 
you know what it's like here, you feel more at home, you're used to the food, and so forth. So really, uh, don't slacken off. Take the next walking, the next sitting, and what we do tomorrow uh, in the same spirit as what we've been doing all along. The retreat is still very much here and with us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.